We're continuing on in our sermon series on the armor of God. And last week, I put a couple questions out there for you to respond back to me with some ideas. How do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? How do we help each other put on the breastplate of righteousness? How can we do this collectively? And so I heard back from you um, throughout the week, and I didn't check it here late in the week, so I, I probably didn't get all of the responses but I heard back from some of you through emails. With some of you, it was personal conversation. With some of you, it was over the phone. With some of you, it was a note in the mail. Uh, with some of you, it was a phone call. I, I heard literally from all of those different ways about the breastplate of righteousness and how do we put that on and how do we help each other. So I wanted just to share some of these with you from my brothers and sisters here at CBC. Steve Bland in an email said, I'm learning to actually visualize the act of putting on armor during my morning, morning devotions each day. The few extra minutes as I go through this procedure allows me to more fully appreciate and comprehend the necessity of God's armor. Only a fool goes into battle without this protection. Amen, Steve. I would say that is true. Only a fool would not put this protection on. Maureen Goodson via email How do I put on this breastplate? She says, remembering whose army I am a part of and following the instructions given by my general, being continuously in communication with him through prayer and observing blessings all around me. How can I help others put on their breastplate of righteousness? She says, covering them in prayer when they stray off course, coming alongside them to help them have faith in the mission again and to help them realize they are not alone. How can we put on this breastplate of righteousness together in community? Maureen says this, by being united as a front for Christ. I love that. We're here together as a military front. Do not let the failings of this world divide us when the commands and precepts of our general are so much greater. When we get stuck battling each other over silly things of the world, it's like buckling one side of the breastplate but leaving the other side to swing about. I love that visual illustration. Tracy McLean, after the service last Sunday, came up to me and says, I I just need to share this with you because I'll forget or it won't happen during the week. So she just shared a few thoughts about the breastplate. She said in her community Bible study, they did a series on the armor of God and they, they would meet on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and they would focus on the armor. And she says, After a while, she said, why am I only doing it on Tuesday and Wednesday? I should be doing it Sunday through Saturday, every day of the week, all seven. She says, speaking of the breastplate of righteousness, she says, it helps when I have the breastplate of righteousness on, Satan's lies and Satan's slanders just fall off. That's what the breastplate is all about. And then she spoke about her relationship with her mother. She says, knowing I am covered in Christ's righteousness, and that her sins are covered also help me with my anger in my relationship. Jim Stair said, to fasten the breastplate of Jesus' righteousness to the belt of truth. We need to do that, right? It's in that order. I need someone to stand with me to have my back. Remember, the armor is mostly in the front, isn't it? That's why we need each other. Cover me, cover my back. Patricia Lewis called me on the phone and said, Ken, I watched this, I'm watching this series, or maybe it was a one-time show, I can't remember, but it's on Amazon Prime. It's called A Stitch in Time. 
That rhymes. Weird. Anyway, that's just a stitch in time, and she says, I was watching this episode. It had to do with the Black Prince. He was a knight in Middle Ages of England, and they were doing a series on his armor, which is still buried with him um, in, in his tomb, interestingly enough, because it was an important thing. But she says, I noticed three things that they talked about relating to your sermon. The first one is that the king would put on the armor with them. And the soldiers would say, if he can fight, so can we. You can't put on the armor, this is in quotes, you can't put on the armor by yourself. It's too heavy. You need help. You need somebody there helping you put it on. A person needs a lot of strength to use the armor. Remember Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and in his strength. It's not about us. It's not about our strength. And then Ron Failmesger um, sent me a little note in the mail. So I received by mail. How do we put on this breastplate of righteousness? Ron said, first of all, we need to know the one who is our breastplate of righteousness, Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. Know him. Be in relationship with him. And secondly, appropriate what we already have in him by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So those are some of the responses about the breastplate of righteousness. And we're gonna be doing this at the end of the sermon today regarding the shoes that we are to be wearing as part of this armor. And I'll put a couple questions out there for you this week to respond just like you did last week. Thank you for, for doing that and taking a few minutes. I enjoy reading those and bringing them here to the congregation. Shoes are a big deal. And we live in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, which is kind of the worldwide center for athletic shoes, right? And so I wanted to remind you of this video clip. Um, this is gonna go back into the 80s, and we're gonna introduce you to a guy named Mars Blackman and Michael Jordan. What he said was, <laughs> it's the shoes. And if you remember this commercial, Spike Lee was you know, the main character in this and with Michael Jordan. And you know, they wanted us to believe, to sell their shoes, that hey, if you put these on, man, you're gonna be doing dunks like what you saw there with Michael. And one of my fondest memories when we were early married years, Patty and I, we went up to Seattle. They had the NBA All-Star game up there in Seattle. And on Saturday, they had the dunk contest, the three-point shootout, and the Legends game at the Key Arena there in Seattle. And then Sunday was the All-Star game. So Saturday, we got to go and watch what you saw on the video, Michael Jordan taking off from the free throw line. For the first time, he did that one and won the slam dunk contest. Do you think it was the shoes? <laughs> Maybe. I have a feeling it has more to do with the athleticism of Michael. But shoes are important, and we're gonna be talking about shoes today in relationship to armor. Now, you might think, wait a minute, shoes, the, like, kinda like the belt, is it really that important when we talk about armor? Because, you know, the breastplate, the shield, the helmet, of, I mean, those are obvious pieces that are very important. So what's the big deal about the shoe? Well, first of all, the typical Roman soldier would not be riding a horse or be riding in a chariot the Roman soldier spent his time in battle on foot. They fought on foot. They marched on foot. They drilled militarily on foot. So having proper shoes was very important to them. 
how could someone fight a battle if they're slipping and sliding, if they can't get traction, if they don't have good footwear to fight? You know, you can injure your hand, you can injure a rib, you can injure your knee, you can injure a lot of parts of your body and still kind of function in battle. But the reality is if your feet go bad on you, you're going to be immobilized. You're not going to be able to stand and face the battle that's ahead. For an athlete, shoes are important because it helps them win a game. And yeah, that's important. We want, to, you know, we want the right shoes. But if you think about soldiers, it was life. It could literally mean their life. It's life and death for them. So here's the question today as we kind of look at this verse in Ephesians 6.15 is what purpose did shoes serve for the Roman soldier in their day, in Paul's day when he was writing this? And what purpose do these spiritual shoes serve for us in our spiritual battle? So the verse out of Ephesians 6 is verse 15 and here's what it says. This is the third piece of armor. We've already put on the belt. The loose ends are tucked in to the truth of God, right? We don't have things flapping around in the wind here. They're tied to the truth. The belt is secure. We have the breastplate of righteousness in place. It's hooked to the belt of truth. Next in order would be the shoes, the sandals. And here's what he says. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That's the shoe, the important piece there. Now, that word fitted, readied, prepared. It's the Greek word there is a, it's a broad word. It has several meanings. One meaning is it's foundation. It provides a good foundation. Another meaning is, and the NIV kind of went this way, readiness. It helps us get prepared and preparation. It helps us prepare. So I, I put steady and ready as kind of the title of the sermon, and that's really the two parts I want to look at today in regards to shoes. They help us, number one, get steady. Steady in the gospel of peace. Now, this idea that we need firm footing. In fact, one of the translations says this, the NEB, the New English Bible. It says, let the shoes on your feet be the gospel of peace to give you firm footing. They kind of go that direction with the translation. It gives you that good foundation, that good firm footing that you need. Why do we need sandals? Now, there's a picture, if you want to shoot that up there, of what the Roman sandal most likely would have looked like in Paul's day. It would have gone up the ankle a ways, and as you see, it had a thick sole, and on the bottom of the sole, it had studs. Now, we're going to talk about why is that? What's going on there with this? Well, first of all, the sandals gave protection. With the thick sole on the bottom of the feet, the soldier would be protected, obviously, as they moved them around, as they stepped from glass or twigs or stones and rocks that were sharp, cutting your feet. That thick sole would provide that protection for them. Now, there was kind of an evil trick that they did in that day. They would take sticks, and they would sharpen them with a really sharp point. Then they would put them in the ground, so just a little bit was showing above the ground, and they were kind of like landmines in ancient warfare. So when the enemies, the opposing um, warriors came along, there would be these little landmines sticking in the ground, sharp. And so having this shoe on with that nice, thick rubber sole would protect your feet from injury, obviously. Shoes allow the soldier to step freely 
without fear and to put their full attention on the battle at hand. They didn't have to worry about what was going on down here. They could focus out here on the battle, what was going on there. So it gave them protection. It protected their feet. It also, and more recently we've learned this, good shoes protect our feet from disease. In World War I, there was a thing that many of you have studied and maybe seen on these History Channel films about World War I and this thing called trench foot. If you didn't have proper shoes, if you didn't keep your feet dry, you would suffer from what it became known as trench foot. And I just Googled this a little bit and found out some interesting things about this. Trench foot or immersion foot syndrome, that's what it was more formally called, It's a serious condition that results from your feet being wet for too long. The condition first became known during World War I when soldiers got trench foot from fighting in cold, wet condition in the trenches. That's where they were, without the extra socks or boots to help keep their feet dry. Trench foot killed an estimated 2,000 American soldiers and 75,000 British soldiers. Think about that. Not from the enemy, not from a bullet, from their feet not being dry, trench foot, and this disease that would take over their body. I found this little piece, and I've been talking about how we fight together. We're in community. This is what it says about trench foot and helping each other. It was also discovered in World War I that a key preventative measure was regular foot inspections. Soldiers would be paired and each partner made responsible for the feet of the other. And they would generally apply whale oil to prevent trench foot. If left to their own devices, soldiers might neglect to take off their own boots and socks to dry. But when it was made the responsibility of another, this became less likely. Do you see how this works? This armor, this shoe that we put on, we do this together, one another's. In scripture, this is part of it. We help each other in this. We need to be reminded of things. I need a partner in this. So it gives us protection from things on the ground as well as any disease, but it also provides grip. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, wrote this about the shoes. He says, These shoes were thickly studded with sharp nails so as to ensure a good grip. This firm, foundation. If we're to stand, if we are to do battle, we need to make sure that we have that grip, that firm foundation there. Battles were fought on wet, sometimes bloody surfaces. The shoes gave that grip or traction that were needed in hand-to-hand combat. It's similar to cleats. We know how this works. Soccer, football, track, track and field, those that run. The importance of cleats. I remember one time we used to do and It's a tradition that's been carried on and continues. We used to call it the Turkey Cup. It was soccer back in the day. Then it got, Rob Schwab came along and said, soccer, what's with soccer? Let's do football. So it went from Turkey Cup to Turkey Bowl, and it became football. And we're going to be doing this in February, the Saturday before Super Bowl this year. But I remember one year we were playing soccer at Meldrum Bar Park in Gladstone. And just like this year, It had rained, not just a little sprinkling, but buckets, right? And so, not thinking, I showed up with tennis shoes. So I go out onto the field, and I kid you not, it it is an ice rink of mud and muck. 
and duck poop and everything else that's out there in Meldrum Bar, right? It is a slippery mess, and I'm trying to play soccer with tennis shoes. Now, people that were watching said that was the funniest thing they've ever seen because you'd try to stop and you just, you know, sail on by or you'd fall face first into the mud. It was over. And somebody at halftime went home and brought cleats to me, and I was so appreciative. Thank you. So I had cleats. Now, I could actually go out there and do what I kind of wanted to do. Now, granted, I wasn't as quick as everybody else, okay? But at least I couldn't complain about the shoes in this situation. I had the cleats. I had that grip that we need. The shoes help us avoid these slippery slopes that we can easily get on in our lives. What do I mean by slippery slopes? Well, let me give you a few examples. Compromising truth for the sake of unity or relevance in our culture. I'll kind of give a little bit of truth over here so that I can fit in or to bring unity between us. That's a slippery slope, isn't it? Satan, the serpent, his first words out of his mouth were, did God really say that? That was a slippery slope there that he started. Another one is giving our affections to things that distract or draw us away from God, whatever that is. Putting our attention on anything that can draw us away from him. Using grace, I talked about this last week, as an excuse for sin rather than an empowerment against sin. That's a slippery slope that we can easily fall onto. So this is something we want to avoid. And again, having a good grip helps us to avoid those things. Another thing we can avoid is wishy-washy stances on things. In Ephesians, Ephesians 4, Paul said, I want to equip you I want to teach you so that you can become mature in Christ. I want you to get to a point where you're no longer children that are just tossed to and fro and blown away by every wind of doctrine that comes and blows in. That idea there is wishy-washiness. We need to know what God's Word says. We need to know the gospel so that we can stand firm in it and not be wishy-washy with it. So what is this gospel of peace that Paul's talking about here? In scripture, gospel is spoken about and there's different terms that are used for the gospel, but it's the same gospel. So let me give you a few um, that are spoken of. The first one, the, the word gospel, by the way, is good news. Evangelion, that's the Greek word, it's good news. It's glad tidings which will bring great joy for all people. Remember that? That was Luke Chapter two, the angel's message to the shepherds. They proclaim the gospel, it's good news. But the gospel, it's the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus came and preached the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news, that's the gospel, of the kingdom. Healing every disease, sickness among the people. He's the king, he is the Christ. He is Lord. He is sovereign over all. His kingdom is going to take away the power of any kingdom that will stand up against him. It's now, but not yet. We can be a part of God's kingdom now, but we won't fully realize everything that means until we are with him eternally in heaven. But it's the gospel of the kingdom. There's a king and there's a kingdom. That's part of the gospel. It's also the gospel of grace. Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says this, 
However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news, that's the gospel, of God's grace. It's the good news of God's grace. Our sins are forgiven. Jesus is not only Messiah and Lord, he's Savior. Forgiven of our sins. It's, it's not earned, it's not merited. It's simply believing and putting our trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Nothing we can add to it or bring to it. That is the gospel of the grace of God. In Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, Paul is speaking in the temple in a, in a city known as Pisidian Antioch. And I think he brings down the gospel to the very core unit of what it is. Here's what he says in, in Acts 13. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes, there it is, is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Again, he's speaking to Jewish people here in the synagogue. They were all about the law of Moses, trying to please God. And he says, that's not how it works. It's already given you in Christ. All you have to do is believe and be forgiven of your sins. That's the gospel of the grace of God. And then Paul refers in this passage to the gospel of peace. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of, key, of peace. And there's really three kinds of peace that Scripture speak of. The first one and the most important one is peace with God. Romans 5, verse 1. And it simply says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have peace with him. Now, later on in that chapter, Paul speaks of who we were before Jesus. And he says in verse 6, we were powerless and we were ungodly. In verse 7, we were unrighteous. In verse 8, we were still sinners, but yet God demonstrated his love for us. Romans 5, 8, beautiful verse. Verse 9, we were under God's wrath. Ooh, wow. Verse 10, we were God's enemies. We need some good news. Apart from Christ, it's pretty bleak, it's pretty dark, it is not good news, but because of Jesus Christ, we can be justified and we can have peace with God through him. That's what he offers us. Do you today have peace with God? And I wanna direct this out live stream also and give you an invitation. The reality is this, if you do not have peace with God, none of the rest of this really matters. It's the most important thing. So I want you to consider today where you are with God. And I wanna give you an invitation to believe and simply trust him and his forgiveness. But there's also the peace of God. Once we come to know him and we have peace with him, there's this peace of God that we can live and walk in. It's not the absence of trouble, but it's calmness and peace in the middle of the mess. I think of that story of Jesus in the boat, the storm. It's kicking the boat around. The, the disciples are in dreaded fear. Where's Jesus? He's in the front of the boat, fast asleep. And I think, there's a man who understood peace. Why? He understood peace with God, obviously. He was God. He had peace. He lived in peace. And that's the kind of peace that he offers us as believers, the peace of God. 
Philippians 4, verses six to seven. Do not be anxious about anything. You probably know this verse, right? We, you know, preach this one to yourself every day. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, many Christians walk in defeat. Many Christians walk and they stumble because they let things like anxiety, worry, fear, fretfulness get in the way. Let go of those things. We can walk in the peace of God. But the third peace that scriptures speak about is peace with others, peace with one another. Success in battle includes not only wearing the whole armor of God, but it includes walking in line with each other. It's marching in formation. We need to be at peace with each other. Ephesians has spent a lot of time speaking of this. Colossians 3:15. let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace with one another and be thankful. Man, the key to peace is through a thankful heart. It's through an attitude of thank you, of being grateful for all that God has given us. I came across this Peanuts cartoon, and Phil's not here today. Phil, if you're watching this or if you watch it later in the week, this is dedicated to you. I know that you love Peanuts, and you have it all over your office. So here's a cartoon. Here's what it says. In one Peanuts cartoon, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole world. That's kind of Lucy, right? Charlie says to her, but I thought you had inner peace. Lucy replies, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. (laughs) Here's the reality. We can have inner peace, but we still need to get along with one another, right? And so we need to be a part of bringing peace to one another. If we have received the good news and are enjoying peace with God and one another, which it brings, we have the firmest possible foothold on which to fight evil. That's what it's talking about, the steady. We're steady in the gospel of peace. We understand what it is. We have peace with God. We have peace with one another, and we are standing firm in this battle against Satan. There's this story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6, and if you know the story of Gideon, it's a fascinating story. This angel appears to him, and he is, he's in the uh, threshing floor, kind of at night in fear of the uh, Midianite people. And in those days, the Jewish people were, were in constant fear of these Midianites coming and taking all of their stuff away and causing harm to their property and their, and their person. So here's Gideon, he's, he's at night, he's kind of hiding, doing threshing so he can get some food for his family. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Really? And what's interesting about that is what happens right after that statement. Here's Gideon living in fear, but yet God says, I see something for you in the future that you don't see, but you're gonna become a mighty warrior. And the story goes on in in six, and you know this story, how he whittles the army of Israel from 32,000 down to 300. That is .1 tenth of 1%, is that right? 
Thelma, of 32,000? I know it's a, it's a lot less, let's just put it that way, than what he started with. Okay, so you go from 32,000 down to 300 warriors, and you're fighting a battle against 135,000 Midianite soldiers. Okay, wow. You're going to need something to prepare you for that battle. Judges 6, verses 23 and 24, look at how peace plays into this. The Lord said to him, peace. Peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Some place over there, it still stands there. But isn't that a beautiful picture? Peace. That's the first words that came out of God's mouth to Gideon. And then Gideon, in response to God, builds this altar. He calls it the Lord is peace. What a beautiful picture of the gospel of peace. We not only need to stand steady in warfare with the gospel, but we need to be ready in warfare with the gospel. We need to be ready to share the gospel of peace. Again, this word that is translated in different ways can mean readiness or preparation also, just as much. We need to be ready to take the gospel out. Now, there are three places in Scripture that combine these three words together. Feet, peace, and gospel. Three those three words, and they combine them. The first one is Isaiah 52, verse seven. And again, remember, these pieces of armor are all linked into the Old Testament because these are God's armor. God's armor that he has, that he gives to you and me. So God puts on these pieces of armor. Now, Isaiah 52, verse seven. By the way, this is still downstairs in the family room on the wall. There's a piece of paper with Isaiah 52, seven. We did this for Advent Seat Sunday School of 2019. It's been on the wall since, it's still there, it's a beautiful verse, and Anna Harmon did it beautifully, so we've just left it up. But here's Isaiah 52, seven, and you probably know this verse, it's beautiful. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Beautiful feet, why? It's not the feet, it's the good news, and it's the proclamation of peace that comes with the gospel, right? There's another Old Testament reference, Nahum 1.15. Now, Nahum, there's probably a book. If I were to give you a quick quiz on Nahum, you would go, there'd probably be crickets in here, right? I mean, it's one of those minor prophets, but Nahum is a sequel to the book of Jonah, in a sense. Jonah went and preached repentance to the Ninevites, the Assyrian people. And against his wishes, they actually did repent and they were spared God's judgment, right? You know the story, the reluctant prophet, Jonah. Well, about, I don't know, maybe 150 years later, they were judged by God. They had come and taken the northern kingdom of Israel captive, the Assyrian people, and Nineveh was their capital. And so God, through Nahum the prophet now, is proclaiming judgment upon them rather than repentance. It's a different story. It's a sequel in a sense. And here's the same picture. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. It sounds like Isaiah, doesn't it? 
Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Again, it combines those ideas of feet, gospel, good news, and peace together. Again, it's not the feet that are beautiful. It's the gospel. It's the peace. And then Paul in Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, quoting from Isaiah and Nahum, here's what he says about sharing the gospel. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? These are valid questions, Paul. How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and here's the quote from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's not about just standing secure in the gospel, but moving out ready to share it with other people. You see the difference there? I know who I am. I'm strong, I'm secure, I have good footing in the knowledge of the gospel, but that's not where it ends. Now the calling on my life is to go out and to share the good news. Use my feet to get out there and to go and to preach and to share the gospel with people that don't know. Putting on sandals is not accomplished just by knowing what the gospel message is, but by having a desire and a plan to share the gospel with other people. This is what Christ did for us. And I'm going to quote a verse in Ephesians 2, verse 17. We've already seen this one in Ephesians. Paul says this is exactly what Jesus did for us. He came and he preached peace, Ephesians 2, 17. There it is. He came, he preached peace to you who are far away. That's the Gentiles in the context there. Peace to those who were near, the Jews. That's what he did. He put on his shoes in a sense. He came and preached the good news of the gospel of peace to us. That's what Jesus did. But that's what Paul did also. Acts 20, verses 22 to 24. This is Paul's story. I've already shared verse 24, but here's the context of it. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Wow. You sure you want to go, Paul? Everybody was telling him, don't go, by the way. And he kept saying, I have to, I have to. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to get my shoes on, to finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I've gotta put my shoes on, and I'm, I'm already firm in the gospel. I know what that means in my life, but that's not the end of the story. I gotta get the message out. I've gotta to get to Jerusalem to proclaim the gospel to the people there. Paul did this in a very powerful way. There's a picture, if you want to shoot this up, of the missionary journeys of Paul. We, we looked at this when we were in the book of Acts. Don't have it? Okay. So use your memory when, we, when I preach through Acts. But there is, people have studied the, the travels of Paul by sea and land. And the best estimation is that he traveled some 10,000 miles, either on foot or by sea, to get the gospel out. He was a missionary just simply by foot or sitting on a boat in the Mediterranean. He did it. He put his shoes on. He got out there. 
So that he lived it out. He didn't just talk about it. As messengers of the gospel of peace were to be ready to share at all times. Are you ready to share the gospel at all times? Another question maybe is what ways can we be ready or prepared to share the gospel? We're to be ready individually. 1 Peter 3.15, you probably know this verse, and it's a good one. And Peter says this, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this in a manner of gentleness and respect. So always be ready. How do you do that? What ways can we be prepared? Just some thoughts for you to consider. At our men's breakfast back in November, we talked about being good listeners in the context of sharing our faith, of gaining an audience with those who don't know Jesus. How are we to bring the gospel if we don't even care about listening? If we don't even care what's going on in their life? So it starts, I think, with just being good listeners, having a heart of compassion for other people. Some other ideas, maybe earning trust, developing friendships with those who don't know the Lord. They're not not gonna believe what you say until they trust you as a person. Looking for opportunities to share the gospel. You know, there's random opportunities that just pop into our lives kind of all the time, right? Sometimes I'm shocked at what happens. I'm in this situation where maybe even somebody comes up and asks me a question about the gospel. And I'm like, how did I even get it? What just happened here? Or I see a situation where I can step in and help somebody and bring the good news of Jesus in that situation. Having our eyes open, looking around, because there's gonna be opportunities every day to share the gospel. Having our testimony fine-tuned. Can you share your story with others? How did you come to know Christ? What are some scriptures that you would use in leading people to the Lord? How can you share it in a way that makes sense to them and is meaningful to them? Having a list of people in my heart and in my mind of people I have regular contact with that I really desire to bring the gospel into their lives. Do you have a list in your mind of those people? I don't know, three, four, five people that you just have a passion and a burden right here to share the gospel with. Those are some ways where we can be ready with the gospel, having our shoes ready. Collectively, how can we do this collectively as a church? How can we be ready? Well, one way is introducing our unsaved friends to other Christians. Hey, Joe, I'd like you to meet Ron over here who's a, who happens to be a believer. But hey, let's get, let Ron get to know Joe or whoever. I can't remember what name I just used. But introducing them to people who know the Lord. That's a great way collectively to do this. Outreach ministries here at CBC. Get outside our walls a little bit. And as a church, look for opportunities to go out. There's a, an author, he is a Dutch theologian. His name is Johannes Blau, B-L-A-U-W. And he says this about missions. One of the ways we as a church collectively can get the good news out is through missions. Here's what he says. Missionary work is like a pair of sandals that have been given to the church in order that it shall set out on the road and keep on going to make known the mystery of the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? They're like 
missionaries, sending them out. It's like sandals that go out on the road, sharing the gospel. We are called out of the world. We're placed in the world. We're sent out to the world. That's missions. That's what we're all called into that. So we're to be steady in the gospel. We're to have the shoes on standing firm, but we're also to have our shoes on prepared to share the gospel, to go out and share the gospel. So how do we put on our shoes? There's a good question. How do we lace these things up so they don't fall off our feet? How do we have our feet fitted? We wanna make sure we have the right size shoe on. Have you ever worn a shoe around that's just not the right size? It's either flopping because it's way too big or it's cramping your feet and you got blisters, right? It's miserable. You wanna have the feet prepared. How do you do that? Here's just some thoughts. Commit every situation to prayer. Commit every situation to prayer. Sunday, talking with Tracy McLean regarding the armor, she spoke of the shoes. She said, I'm gonna give you a little something for next week. She says, whenever I hear that word prepare, and it's here in this verse in some versions, the preparation, she says, I think pre-prayer. Pre-pray the shoes on. I think that's pretty helpful. Be praying, committing every situation to prayer. Pray in the right posture. Now, I'm not talking about standing, sitting, kneeling. I'm talking about the heart posture. Lord, what do you want? It's yielding to him. It's that posture of, I don't have the answers here. You do. I'm gonna trust you. I need help. God, please, come along and help me. You're the commander. I'm simply a soldier in your army. What do you want me to do here? That's the posture of our prayer. Walk in obedience to Christ. There's a great verse in 1 Peter 2, 21. It says, walk in his steps, Peter said. Jesus, he's our example. He walked this world, he walked this life so that we can walk in his example, in his very steps. You know, one of the ways to avoid foot injury in this world is if we're walking close to Jesus, obedience to him, we're gonna walk in his footprints and we're gonna be safe, right? I love the the imagery there of his steps because that's something Peter could have done as a disciple of Jesus, walking with him in the dusty roads there in Galilee. He could have literally walked in Jesus' steps. Think about that. I wanna walk so close to Christ. Bob Harris, my good friend who passed away here, member of the church, used to say, I wanna walk so close to Jesus that I get the dust of his sandal on me. That's how close I wanna be walking to my Jesus, my Lord. Walk as a peacemaker. Create peace in the body of Christ, not strife. Do your part to quench division and strife when you see it. We're all called to be peacemakers. And so that is our calling. Do walk that way. So in conclusion, I wanna give you a couple questions. These are for you to think about during the week, to respond either on our CBC um, web there or email me, you can call me, you can mail something in, whatever works for you, but respond. Here's a couple questions to think about. The first one is, how does knowing the gospel, how does knowing the gospel help you to stand firm in your daily battles? Question number one. Question number two, and I want you to think about this one, How can we live in constant readiness to share the gospel? I wanna be steady 
in the gospel, I want to be ready to share the gospel with my shoes on. How do I do both of those things? So be thinking about that this week, and you can be responding to me.